Many years ago, Riley Knight completed a degree in history. This proved to be a bad move, as it was absolutely useless for him. Until now, here's some half-assed history. What's going on, mate? Great to have you along for some more half-assed history. This week on the agenda, you're going to be having a chat about Bartholomew Roberts, uh, who was, by the total number of ships that he captured, the most successful pirate from the golden age of piracy, that is, around the turn of the 18th century. Now, Captain Roberts, he, he captured and plundered over 400 ships across his piratical career, which is a career that spanned, if you'll believe it, three years. Uh, three years. I mean, that's it. Pirates weren't known for their longevity at the best of times, and uh, Roberts generated an enormous amount of infamy in a very short time indeed. I mean, 400 ships in three years. That is some pretty bloody hard yakka. He went at it pretty hard. And I mean, when we think of the, you know, the, the when we have this modern conception we have of a pirate, you know, Roberts kind of fulfilled that. I mean, I mean he didn't have a you know peg leg and an eye patch, but when it comes to, you know, you think of a pirate dressed in fine clothes and jewellery with a, a hat and a big feather, you know, the someone who was, was brash and fierce and brave and unyielding and also, you know, callous and avaricious and greedy and and, and murderous. Um, Roberts was all of these things. Uh, he he had a love of, of fine clothing, of rich jewellery, of treasure, and he also had a, you know, pretty callous disregard for others and a you know, a, a contempt for authority that uh, on more than one occasion led to some rather murderous results. Um, but there were there were other quite common pirate tropes that we can associate uh, with Roberts, uh, some more certain than others and some sort of less surface level than others as well. Uh, for instance, he was one of many pirates, of course, that, uh, that used a Jolly Roger flag, a, a variant, it has to be said, of, of the, the skull and crossbones. Didn't quite use the skull and crossbones, but still use a black flag with some of the motifs that you tend to associate with pirates. We'll talk about that. Um, and in fact, he might actually even be behind the uh, the etymology, the name Jolly Roger. We, he might have something to do with the origin of this term, although that's much less certain. Anyway, Roberts, he spent three years looting and plundering and pillaging the Atlantic Ocean from, from the Caribbean to West Africa, from Brazil to Newfoundland. And he captured hundreds of ships, as I say, assembled a huge amount of wealth, disrupted Atlantic shipping to the point where merchants didn't really want to set sail. By the end of his career, there was this huge drop-off in the movement of seaborne goods because people were that afraid that they would run afoul of, you know, a pirate like Roberts, particularly particularly Roberts himself, who was was, was so prolific, as I say, in, in attacking all of these ships. Anyway, a lot to get across, of course, today, and I want to thank alert listener Brian Method for his uh, for this specific suggestion, uh, as well as all the other listeners who have, who have got in touch requesting more pirate history. And, and as I say, a lot to get across with Roberts' story, uh, some interesting and some funny, some, well, rather dark and unpleasant. When you look past the romanticization of pirates, they actually did some... Some pretty nasty stuff, man. Um, but uh, as part of researching Roberts, I actually did, I did I did a fair bit of reading about a lot more than just him. Um, and I want to share some of the stuff I learned about uh, some other pirates he was associated with, as well as more broadly talk about some other piratical topics, you know, various pirate codes, uh, the meaning and the use of different pirate flags, all sorts of stuff like that. So th- there's that much to, to talk about that I couldn't fit it all into one episode. And so I've decided to split it into two. So rather than just talk about uh, Bartholomew Roberts this week and next week, we're also, I mean, this episode and the next one, will also take in a fair bit of pirate history from the golden age of piracy. And uh, look, you know, we all, we, we, we still love a, 
a bit of naval history here on Half House History, especially pirate history. And this time around, we've got all the blood and guts and the horrible murder that you can eat. So here we go. We're going all the way back here. We're going all the way back to the year 1682 to Western Wales, a little village there known as Kuznewebach, and uh, sometimes also known as Little Newcastle. And it was in this little village on the 17th of May in 1682 that uh, a young baby named John Roberts was born. He, I mean, that was his name at birth. He wouldn't become known as, uh, as Bartholomew Roberts for a, for a good while yet, and there's a good reason that he's known as uh, Bartholomew Roberts. We'll come to that in, uh, in, in due time. But uh, interestingly, we don't really know all that much at all about Roberts's childhood. Uh, we know next to nothing about his upbringing. You know, all that we do know for certain is that he went to sea in, uh, in 1695 at the age of 13. And uh, what he did while at sea is largely uncertain. He worked on different ships, merchant ships, slave ships. But again, we don't have any specific record of his career or the ships that he worked on or what he got up to for a long time. And a lot of the, you know, a lot of the information we have on him is anecdotal from stories he himself told or maybe even just people made up about him. We don't we don't actually know too much about his uh, the earlier stages of his life. Um, until 1718, when he was 30, uh, he was 36 years old at this point. And it was then that, uh, you know, after what was in all probability a very normal and run-of-the-mill career as a sailor, cutting about in the Atlantic, sailing here and there, um, we do know that he was the uh, the second mate, right, the third in command of a slave ship named the Princess under the command of a bloke named Captain Abraham Plum. Now, by this point, you know, after, what, 20-odd years at sea, uh, Roberts, is uh, he's grown tall, he's strong, he's, he's very deeply tanned. And he's gained a lot of experience and therefore is not just a, uh, an able seaman, but also a, a reasonably talented navigator as well. And so his position here as one of the ship's officers, the, uh, the second mate under, under Plum, right, uh, was probably a very, you know, probably a comfortable enough position for him as someone who had been on the sea for many, many years. But working on a slave ship, a, a terrible and a damnable thing. Uh, but that's what he did. And uh, in, in June of 1719, right, he, uh, he was on board the Princess and he was anchored in Anamabu, which is now known as Anamaboa in, in modern-day Ghana. And while there, the Princess was attacked and it was captured by pirates, uh, the pirates that were aboard two vessels, the Royal Rover and the Royal James. And these pirates were led by a bloke whose name was Howell Davis. And this Davis, quite an interesting character, I'll tell you about him in a little bit, but we're not 100% sure exactly how. But as part of the princess being attacked and captured in this way, Roberts joined the crew of the pirates that had captured the princess. We don't know if it, he may have gone willingly. He may have been forced. It was very common for, for pirate crews to force new recruits uh, into their numbers. But Roberts may have gone willingly. It's not clear. Um, but obviously, I mean, any way that it happened, this became a huge turning point in his career as he took his first steps uh, to becoming one of the most famous pirates ever to have lived. But whether he joined of his own accord or not, Roberts apparently, to begin with, was not a particularly enthusiastic pirate. Uh, he did very well as he joined Davis's crew, and obviously there was a good reason for this, but he wasn't that keen on the pirate life to begin with. But he was a skilled navigator, as I said, and, uh, and he had plenty of experience on the sea, so he, he was held in reasonably high regard by the pirate crew, and in particular by Davis the captain because Davis like Roberts was Welsh and they shared a common private tongue 
with the Welsh language. This meant that Roberts became something of a confidant to his new captain, who would often chat to Roberts about what was on his mind or have you know private discussions and chats that the other crew couldn't understand. So any initial resistance that Roberts had to the pirate life was actually rather quickly overcome, and uh, and not just because of you know his position of favour with Captain Davis, but also when he realised the opportunity for riches and plunder that his future had in store too. So it was around this time, uh, as he began to embrace the pirate life, that he abandoned the, he abandoned the name John and started going by Bartholomew. And again, this was quite common, a very common thing for pirates to do to make themselves harder for governments to to track down and, and punish, you know, give themselves a new identity, a new alias. Uh, it made them easy to sort of slip through the cracks and, and make sure that they weren't found out. In the weeks following Roberts joining Davis's crew, uh, the pirates ended up abandoning one of their ships, the Royal James. It was too damaged to continue sailing after all the piracy had been doing, and so instead they all sailed aboard the Royal Rover, and they sailed to Principe, right, which is an island off the African coast, and it was under the control of the Portuguese when they arrived. Now, Davis, you know, approaching uh, Principe like this, he hoisted the British flag, and was permitted to enter the harbour uh, by essentially posing as a as a British privateer, really. And then after landing, he sent a very cordial invitation to the Portuguese governor to join him aboard the Royal Rover for a luncheon and, and to take some refreshments. And you think, well, this is all very civilised, you know, especially for a bunch of pirates. You'd think that these this, this bloodthirsty band of murderous cutthroats that have, have would have made a, rather a more different a- entrance to the uh, to the harbour of Principe, but no. Davis had a very cunning plan with this invitation that he sent off to the Portuguese governor. I mentioned before that he was quite the character, and he certainly was. Davis, uh, he had an entrance into piracy that was actually very similar to Roberts. He was working on a slave ship as a, as a mate when he was captured by the pirate Edward England. Uh, now, in time, England, um, the, the pirate, not the country, uh, gave Davis command one of his ships, uh, which proved to be a bad move because the crew mutinied and sailed to the West Indies, bringing Davis with them, uh, where he was imprisoned on a charge of piracy, but he was released. He wasn't executed like most pirates were. Uh, and eventually he seized a new ship, was elected captain, and he sailed back across the Atlantic to loot and plunder uh, the, on, the, uh, on the West African coastline. But he loved a cunning plan, this Davis fella. Uh, and more than once he used trickery and chicanery rather than, you know, the more, the more classic standbys of intimidation and violence uh, in order to, uh, to seize great riches. For instance, one time he chased down a... Uh, a, uh, a smaller French vessel, right, in a large vessel, vessel that he had, 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 uh, had seized. But this large vessel that he'd, uh, he'd captured was actually very lightly armed. It didn't have all that many guns and it wasn't really in a, in a great position to start a fight. However, the smaller French ship, which was quite well armed itself, uh, it didn't know that the larger ship chasing it down was lightly armed and therefore the captain thought he was outmatched and surrendered when Davis ran out, ran up the black flag and revealed himself to be a pirate. So a bit of a gutsy move, really, because if the French had decided to take the fight, he would have been absolutely buggered. If they'd turned around and started, you know, firing the cannons at them, Davis wouldn't have had any kind of reply. But uh, look, it, you know, he just stood his ground, didn't stand his ground, stood his water, I guess. I don't know. Um, but look, he managed to seize a ship without firing a shot. So not a bad uh, job from him there. But the greatest trick he pulled was when he arrived at a slaving fort in Gambia. Again, pretending to be a British privateer, just like, just like what he's done here in Principe. Uh, and he invited the commander of the Royal African Company aboard his ship to dine with him, just as we've seen him do in Principe. Uh, and this invitation was accepted most gratefully. However, when the commander arrived on the ship, 
he was quickly taken hostage and Davis then demanded a ransom for his safe return. The ransom was paid, Davis was rich, and he was keen to run back the same bit of trickery here in Principe. He thought, I'll, 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 kidnap this, uh, I'll kidnap this governor, I'll ransom him back to the Portuguese, and I'll sail out of here with my coffers full and my pockets jingling. So, he sends off this invitation and he got ready to play the part of the host, although, you know, not a very good one. Speaking personally, I don't love it when my dinner invitations end up being, you know, end up with me being taken hostage and ransom. But the governor, after receiving this invitation, he wasn't to be outdone when it came to hospitality. He received this invitation from this so-called British privateer and he goes, oh, mate, absolutely no worries. But before heading down to the harbour and, you know, stepping aboard uh, Davis's ship, he plays the old Uno reverse card and he says, oh, no, 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 I wouldn't dream of coming and taking refreshments with you until you've come aboard, come ashore or come up to my fort and had a glass of wine with me. And Davis gets this sort of, you know, counter offer and he goes, oh, well, I mean, look, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. It, it, it'll be fine, right? I'll head up to the... Uh, I'll head up to the to the fort. I'll have a glass of wine. I'll, I'll I'll be gracious, accept the invitation, and sooner sooner or later, I'll eventually get him onto the ship. And of course, you know, then then it'll be uh, the same plan, like just like we did at the uh, the Royal African Company. We'll take him hostage, and we'll uh, we'll get a king's well, get a governor's ransom for him. However, when Davis went ashore with a bunch of his pirates, right, and uh, and headed up towards the fort, out of nowhere. There was a Portuguese ambush, right? They discovered that Davis and his and his crew weren't British privateers at all, but in fact they were pirates, and as a result, they were attacked as they landed by this Portuguese party, and Davis was shot dead during the ambush. And when the crew of the Royal Rover uh, realised that their captain had, you know, suffered a rather acute case of lead poisoning. They quickly scarpered. They made themselves scarce as quick as they could. They scooted out of the port and made for the open ocean. And here's where it, get, it gets really interesting. Because the crew now with the death of Davis had to elect a new captain. And you'll never guess who they chose. Many pirate ships were actually very democratic indeed. Uh, it was, it was a, a mark, a, a noted mark of difference for the life aboard a pirate ship compared to one of a, you know, of a professional navy that the, there was a lot more equality, very, much more egalitarian than, than most other ships. The captain wasn't in a position of great privilege above the other crew members. Every crew member had a say, a vote in where the ship went, what it did, the sorts of targets that it, uh, it went for. And uh, even when you know, great riches were seized by pirate ships, it was spread out very evenly amongst the uh, the crew you know the captain would receive a little more and the officers and that sort of thing would receive you know slightly larger shares but broadly speaking it was a very flat power structure aboard uh, aboard ships and outside of a an actual battle where the captain was the undisputed master of the ship and could order people around say do this do that no arguing when a, when a pirate ship was just being sailed about you know not in not in a fight Crew members could stand up and, and voice their grievances and argue with the captain and 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 it was, as I say, a very level playing field. Which is in stark contrast, of course, to the the iron discipline of a of a navy ship, of a, of a military vessel, where the the ironclad rule of the ship's commanding officer was beyond question. You couldn't go around standing up to uh, to the captain of a of a navy vessel. You'd be in big trouble if you did. So a very interesting difference, and and one of the reasons that a lot of people actually turned to piracy, a lot of sailors turned to piracy because they were treated, broadly speaking, as as equals. Even even when there were you know officers, there were captains and 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 first and second mates and quartermasters and whoever else. As I say, the power structure a lot flatter 
on a pirate ship. Anyway, as part of this power structure, electing a new captain when the uh, when the position was empty was not often not very often empty due to the uh, you know the volition of, of its former occupant. But whenever it came empty, electing uh, a new captain was was the uh, was the common thing to do. And of course, I mean it's probably rather obvious to you at this point. The crew aboard the Royal Rover chose none other than our mate Bartholomew Roberts, who was duly elected captain. And you might think, well, that's a bit strange, and you'd be correct in thinking so, because why was this bloke who had only been aboard this ship for a couple of weeks, why this newcomer to the, the crew of the Royal Rover, why was he then elected captain? Well, a couple of reasons, really, although we don't know for sure, but a couple of reasons have been put forward as to why he was uh, sort of elevated so swiftly. He did have a lot of experience. Uh, as a sailor, he was a he was you know he was a good navigator as we mentioned, and uh, he had experience uh, working as an officer when he sailed for the British. And on top of this, he was also close with the former captain, which which might have helped. But some of the leading theories about his uh, his meteoric rise to power aboard uh, the, this pirate vessel was because of just the sheer force of his personality. Roberts was loud and brash. He was fearless and inspiring. And, and the crew may have been drawn to him for that because confidence, I mean, I mean, as you probably know, confidence will get you everywhere. And, and maybe it was just sheer gutsy charisma that got Roberts the captaincy. Who knows? In any case, his first act as captain of the Royal Rover is quite a telling one foreshadowing what kind of pirate captain that he's going to be in the coming years because he orders the ship to turn around and sail right back to Principe. And the reason for this is that he is determined to exact vengeance on the governor, the Portuguese governor in Principe, for the killing of Captain Davis. This was a bold and daring and very risky and also very bloody murderous way of approaching things. And as a result, I think it's fair to say it was altogether very characteristic of Roberts because he didn't really stray from this path for the rest of his career as a pirate. This was exactly the sort of thing he was known for, for being brash and daring and risky and, you know, also a little bit bloodthirsty here and there as well. So the Royal Rover sailed back to Principe and under the cover of darkness, the uh, the crew, they crept ashore and they, they snuck into the town where the governor lived. And there they stole just about everything that wasn't nailed down and then murdered a bunch of the men that lived there in their beds and burnt down their homes just for good measure. I I mean, I don't even know if they actually killed the governor. I don't think they did. But I tell you what, they spilt more than enough blood to make up for Davis's killing. And Roberts's career as a pirate captain was off to the races in a major way. This was the beginning of a piratical career that burnt hot and bright and was known for outrageous success up and down the Atlantic, Captain Bartholomew Roberts had arrived on the seas. After the massacre at Principe, Roberts immediately got on with good old-fashioned piracy, just, you know, taken completely by his new position and lifestyle. The Royal Rover began attacking and capturing ships off the coast of Africa for a little while and had good success while doing so. Before long, however, Roberts called the crew together to discuss and vote on where they were to sail next. Again, a very common thing to do. The crew all would have a say in what the uh, in the direction the ship was going to be headed in. And the crew at this point, look, they are absolutely in love with this bloke. They called him pistol proof because his or because all of his schemes seemed to work out so well, and he gained, gained their unswerving loyalty thanks to his successes. You know, not only just with the raid on Principe, but also with the treasure that had been brought in uh, pillaging and looting ships up and down the coast of Africa for a while there. So they voted 
to sail to Brazil and intercept ships sailing between Europe and South America. And with the decision made, the Royal Rover duly made its way across the Atlantic. And after landing on an uninhabited island and making repairs to the ship, they then prowled the Brazilian coastline for two months, well into the back half of 1719. However, luck wasn't with them, and they didn't encounter a single other ship until, just as they were starting to discuss perhaps leaving to sail north to the West Indies, they came across a fleet of 42 unprotected Portuguese ships. This fleet was waiting in a bay along the coast of Brazil. They were waiting for two 70-gun Portuguese warships to come and uh, escort them back to Lisbon, two massive warships that were going to take care of them if, you know, in the event of something like a pirate attack. However, the pirate attack came a little earlier than the Portuguese warships, and so Robert wasted Robert's wasted no time and immediately attacked, taking advantage of their weakness, and captured the richest ship of all in the bay, which was loaded down with tens of thousands of golden coins and, best of all, a diamond-encrusted cross that had been specially made for the king of Portugal, João V. So sorry, João, old mate, uh, says Roberts. I'll be taking that cross for myself. And he plonked it round his neck and he wore it most proudly for the rest of his career. He loved it. Robert, Roberts had a, he had a real thing for dressing in the most opulent and rich clothing he could find. He loved jewellery and all that sort of stuff. And I don't know exactly when he started doing this, but at some point in his career, he made it a habit to dress in very rich red silks. And in addition to his bright scarlet clothing, he loved, you know, as I say, he loved fancy jewellery like his cross, but also wore a hat with an enormous flamingo plume in it as well. So, you know, I talked about how brash and bold this bloke was and his outfits, they really go to show this. Uh, As a wanted pirate with the threat of execution hanging over him, he didn't even try to remain anonymous at all. He was very, very happy to to put 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 himself out there loud and proud and, and have everyone know he was Captain Bartholomew Roberts. Anyway. He nicked the Diamond Cross, he nicked about 40,000 Portuguese Midoris, uh, which was an absolute fortune in gold. Uh, and of course, it was divided up amongst the crew. We'll talk about, we'll talk more about that in, in just a little bit. And uh, with this absolute windfall now in, in their possession, the crew sailed the Royal Rover towards Devil's Island, uh, just off the coast of Guiana. Uh, so the crew could, you know, spend their newfound riches. And after a few weeks of lavish R&R there, the Royal Rover finally set sail once again, sailing around the northeast coast of South America. And there they captured more ships and plundered more riches, including a sloop, uh, a sloop which is a type of ship uh, small and swift and single-masted, which was the preferred vessel uh, for pirates. Roberts quickly put this new sloop to use. Um, uh, Sloops were were a very common pirate vessel because of how quick they were. They were very speedy, perfect for hit-and-run tactics and, you know, being a pirate generally involved a lot of hitting and a lot of running. So it was it was the preferred vessel, as I say, for many pirate captains. Anyway, adding this uh, this sloop to his collection and uh, with the beginnings of, I guess, what you could call a, you know, a pirate fleet here, Roberts and his crew, they continue sailing about looking for new targets. And one day they come across a brig, which is a, a larger, a two-masted ship, a bit slower than a sloop. And Roberts, he goes, yep, no worries, I'll have that. He took 40 men with him, he jumped on the sloop, and he gave chase, confident that, of course, his faster sloop would be able to overtake the brig and then, you know, give him the business and he'd have a new, uh, a, you know, a brand new victim and hopefully the, the, the hold would be full of all sorts of new riches for them to come across. However, he left the Royal Rover under the command of a bloke whose name was Walter Kennedy. And Kennedy, like any good pirate would immediately mutinied behind Roberts's back. As soon as he was across the horizon, uh, Kennedy goes, that's enough of that, I'm captain now, and he sailed off, right? Uh, he sailed off in his in his new ship, I guess, in, in the Royal Rover. He proclaimed himself captain, 
uh, and decided to sail to Ireland. Uh, and I tell you what, this bloke seemed to have been a bit of a bloody dropkick uh, for more than a couple of reasons. Have a listen to this. First of all, you've just got to go and look at the flag that this guy used, right? So we'll talk about flags uh, next episode, but like it was quite common for different pirate captains to have their own pirate flag, their own specific version of the pirate flag. And Kennedy's is just the dumbest pirate flag that I've ever seen, right? So you know the classic the, the classic skull and crossbones, right? Everyone knows that one, right? Kennedy's flag did have a skull and crossbones, but it was small and sort of jammed into the bottom left corner. And the skull, right, seems to have been, this is not a joke, just a normal human face drawn onto the shape of a skull. Like, I don't know what this bloke thought a skull looked like, that under the skin we had eyes and a nose and, you know, muscle and all the stuff that we have. Just, just what You just got a, a normal face on a, on a white bony orb underneath your skin. The skull on Kennedy's flag just looks like a kid drew a face on a skull shape. Like, it is... It, it, I mean, look, and, and, and even with that, it would already be the dumbest fl- pirate flag in existence. That would be enough to just be like, wow, that this bloke is an idiot and I'm, I'm not scared of him even in the slightest, right? But on top of that, he also had on the flag, are you ready for this, right? I said the skull and crossbones was jammed into the bottom left corner because on the right-hand side of the flag, taking up the entire right-hand side of the flag was a naked guy holding a sword and an hourglass. I don't know what was going on with Walter Kennedy. I, I mean, his, his flag was ridiculous. Truly stupid. It, it, it would not have in, inspired terror in anyone. It looks like a terrible children's drawing, right? But on top of that, I mean, his navigational skills weren't much better than his flag designing skills. Because rather than sail to Ireland like he planned on doing, he ended up with his ship on the northwest coast of Scotland. So nice job there, Kennedy, mate. Missed it by quite a margin. Um, But then when going ashore in Scotland, he was recognised as a pirate and so had to flee. And he fled to Ireland and actually managed to make it this time. He went to ground, he laid low and eventually lost uh, lost the heat and started to run a brothel. But it didn't get much better for him then because one of the prostitutes that worked at the brothel uh, ultimately accused him of theft, which ended up with him in prison, where, once again, he was recognised as a pirate by one of the other blokes in the prison, and so he was finally executed. And his legacy today, the legacy of Walter Kennedy, is, I, I mean, I think his greatest legacy of all, is, of course... Having the dumbest pirate flag I've ever seen. Please, please do yourself a favour and go and look it up. It is the stupidest thing. It is the stupidest thing in the history of piracy. Anyway, back to Roberts. He's aboard his sloop. He's chasing down this brig with the 40 blokes that he took with him. And it's not going well. The sloop that he was sailing actually ended up being caught up by the wind and was blown wildly off course. And so it took him a week to get back to where he'd left the Royal Rover. And, of course, I mean, surprise, surprise, it was long gone. Back on its way to Scotland with the stupidest pirate flag in history flapping from its mast. And Roberts wasn't happy about this at all, as you might bloody well imagine. There'd been a mutiny. It had been a mutiny behind his back. He hadn't had a chance to, to you know, respond to it, to do anything with it. The, the, the ship was just gone, right? And with it, a, a bunch of his crew as well. Kennedy had absolutely done him dirty here. And so, as a result of this mutiny, this betrayal, to bring his remaining crew together, Roberts did something that has echoed through history to become one of the, one of the, one of the you know, very famous modern day tropes of piracy. And he wasn't the first to do this, but he certainly was most one of the famous. He established a pirate code for his ship. 
Now, this wasn't on, 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 uncommon on, on ships in general, not necessarily just pirate ships. Um, on all sorts of ships, sailors, when they came aboard, they would sign up to a set of agreements or articles uh, as they began work as part of a ship's crew. But as you'll see, pirate ships, I mean, you can probably guess, they tended to have slightly different, uh, slightly different agreements uh, on their uh, as parts of their as part of their codes. There, the, Roberts based his off of Howell Davis's, although they weren't identical. Apparently, not not all the pirate codes from history have, have survived. There are only about nine or ten that have actually made it through to the twenty first century. But Roberts is one of them, and. Uh, I'd like to read you Captain Roberts Pirate Code uh, so and, and have a chat about it so you can just sort of get a sense of, of what life may have been like for these sailors aboard these pirate ships back in the early 18th century. <clears throat> have a listen. Number one. Every man has a vote in affairs of moment, has equal title to the fresh provisions or strong liquors at any time seized, and may use them at pleasure, unless a scarcity makes it necessary for the good of all to vote a retrenchment. So, you know no matter where the ships went and what they got, everyone would be involved. You had, an, you had a say in where the ship would go and who it would attack. And then if there was any, if there was any loot or booty prizes, whether it, whether it was food or grog or whatever, you'd, you'd get it, you'd get some of it, and you'd be able to do with it what you would. You, know, you could go and get pissed and have a great time. You could stuff yourself silly with your share, whatever you want. You could use your, your part of the, uh, of, of the plunder at pleasure. Number two. Every man to be called fairly in turn by list on board of prizes, because over and above their proper share, they were on these occasions allowed a shift of clothes. But if they defrauded the company to the value of a dollar in plate, jewels or money, marooning was their punishment. If the robbery was only betwixt one another, they contested themselves with slitting the ears and nose of him that was guilty and set him on shore, not in an uninhabited place, but somewhere where he was sure to encounter hardships." So a bit of word salad there, but essentially what I take away from that is that everyone, again, got, a, got their fair share of the plunder and uh, you'd be marooned if you attempted to lie or cheat or rob or steal your way into a, uh, into a larger share, unless it was just between you and another bloke, like if you were rubbaging through someone's uh, stuff and trying to nick stuff, and then he could slit your, your nose and your ears, which isn't very nice, and then you'd get not quite marooned, but definitely somewhere where you're going to have a bad time. <clears throat> Number three, this will surprise you. No person to game at cards or dice for money. I guess gambling was, you know, one of those things that caused a lot of problems on pirate ships because it would just result in, in arguments and, and disagreements between people if, if uh, you know, any at any point the, the game went wrong. So probably just a very prudent and sensible discipline measure there, although I can't imagine the people on board would be too happy about not being able to play, uh, you know, would, would gamble their, uh, their loot between each other. Number four, the lights and the candles to be put out at eight o'clock at night. If any of the crew after that hour still remained inclined for drinking, they were to do it on the open deck. So very considerate there, you'd think. Eight o'clock, you know, people have got to be up early in the morning to uh, to go about the the duties on the ship. So if you wanted to get pissed and and, and have, have a good time getting merry on uh, on the grog, well, that's fine. But just make sure you do it on the deck in the open uh, in the open air, so people aren't getting disturbed. A very prudent and uh, and sensible measure there, I think. <clears throat> Number five. To keep their piece, pistols, and cutlass clean and fit for service. Of course, pirate ships had to be ready uh, for a fight at a moment's notice, and so all of the crew had the responsibility to make sure that they were in fighting shape, including their weapons, of course, so that they could uh, they could leap aboard an enemy ship and uh, and cut them to pieces at, at, uh, at again at the drop of a hat. Number six. 
No boy or woman to be allowed amongst them. If any man were to be found seducing any of the latter sex and carried her to sea disguised, he was to suffer death. Something that's taken pretty seriously back then, of course, was women being allowed onto ships, not just pirate ships as well. I mean, we've talked about women who have smuggled themselves onto various vessels. We talked about uh, Anne Bonny and Mary Reed, episode 49, get across that. We talked about uh, we talked about Jean Barret as well in episode 167, get across that one. So pretty serious business bringing a woman on board a pirate ship, uh, you know, and you'd really, you'd really pay the penalty if you were involved in doing that. And Look, I'm sure there were many reasons for that sort of stuff. It was partly a discipline reason, partly a religious reason, all, all sorts of stuff went into it. But uh, certainly something that, again, as I say, was taken very seriously, as you can see by this uh, this article on, on Roberts' uh, pirate code, his agreements in. Number seven, to desert the ship or their quarters in battle was punished with death or marooning. And often, the, you know, oftentimes marooning was essentially this, uh, it was essentially just a, a death sentence that was slightly delayed. So, you know... I guess giving giving everyone aboard the ship a very good reason to stay at their posts and fight to the last man because otherwise they were they'd be dying anyway. So uh, that one makes makes a fair bit of sense when you think about it. Number eight, no striking another on board, but every man's quarrels to be ended on shore at sword and pistol. So if there was some bloke on the ship who was pissing you off, you couldn't actually sort it out. You know, you had to. Had to take it outside, just as you might, uh, just as two drunken yobbos might have to do at a pub these days. So the, the the two blokes would have to put aside their differences until the ship landed ashore, and then they would, uh, I guess, sort things out, as it says, uh, at sword and pistol. So very exciting. Anyway, number nine: no man to talk of breaking up their way of living till each had shared one thousand pounds. If in order to this any man should lose a limb or become a cripple in their service. He was to have $800 out of the public stock and for lesser hurts proportionately. So you weren't allowed to talk about giving up. You weren't allowed to talk about retiring. You weren't allowed to try to, you know, bring other people around to the idea that, ah, maybe it's time to hang up the boots. Um, And then on top of that, uh, well, obviously you could once you'd earned enough money. That that was the the thing about the uh, the thousand pounds. Once enough loot had been collected, then you'd be like, right, I'm going to quit while I'm ahead and and, and again, hang up the boots. But interestingly, there was an early form of workman's compensation. You know, you if you suffered a, a terrible injury, if you lost a limb or, or, or had a you know a horrific injury of some kind, you would be compensated out of the communal share of treasure that was taken, which is very interesting indeed. And and Roberts wasn't the only one to have uh, have articles like this on his code, as as, as we'll come to. Number ten. The captain and quartermaster to receive two shares of a prize, the master, boatswain and gunner, one share and a half, and the other officers, one and a quarter. So I mentioned before about the flat power structure of most pirate ships, and this was also reflected in a rather flat prize structure where, you know, a captain rather than taking half or even a quarter of the loot that was plundered would only take twice what everyone else got, you know, so if everyone gets, I'm just making this up, but for example, if everyone got 10 pieces of eight, the captain would only get 20. So certainly a larger share, but not enormously so. Not not a share, you know, certainly not nothing that it's not like he's taking half the gold for himself or anything else like that. A very a very equitable division of uh, of wealth there. And finally, number eleven, the musicians to have rest on the Sabbath day, but the other six days and nights, none without special favour. Musicians on a ship were, as you can imagine, a very big and important part of keeping the crew happy. Uh, keeping them entertained and ship's musicians had to play 
whenever requested by the crew. Basically, if you were a musician on a ship and the crew wanted you to strike up a song or play something for them, you just had to do it. And it's interesting that Roberts actually gave his musicians a day off every week. The, The rest of the crew didn't get the day off, but the musicians would have got the day off from playing, I guess, just to, I don't know, rest the pipes, rest the fingers, whatever it was. But an interesting thing that was considered so important, it was baked into this pirate code. Now, obviously some of this stuff it sounds like a bloody school camp, you know, no playing games, no uh, lights out at eight o'clock, every man's quarrels to be ended on short sword and pistol. Sounds like the experiences we all had at school camp when we were young. But these articles go a long way, I reckon, in, in, in showing the the strangely egalitarian nature of life aboard some pirate ships. You've got to say in where the ship went. You've got a share of the treasure. And if you wanted to get pissed, just do it upstairs on the deck where you're not disturbing the others as they sleep. Now, of course, not all pirate ships were run like this, and Roberts could still be a very strict disciplinarian, but all the same, it does illustrate what life might have been like for these pirates, particularly in contrast, as I say, with the iron discipline of a Navy, of a, of a, of a navy vessel, a military ship. Now, pirate codes go back a long way. Roberts wasn't the first to have one. The earliest one we know of is dated back to the 1660s, and a lot of them were influenced by those existing agreements that regular sailors would make when boarding a ship. Although, as you can see, they definitely changed and evolved as time went on to take the... Uh, the scope of piratical work in. But generally speaking, all of these pirate codes, they dealt with the same sorts of issues. Discipline, compensation, that sort of thing. Other pirate codes that have survived through to the modern age, you can you can jump online and read through them, actually. And they've got some really interesting stuff in them. For instance, a lot of them actually have very specific provisions about how much money you would get if you lost an arm or a leg or an eye or whatever, the, the specific injury, right, as part, of, as part of this, again, early workman's comp. A uh, specific injury would get, you know, a, a certain amount of money. And, and the going rate varied from ship to ship. You'd get between 400 and 800 pieces of eight, depending on the injury. You know, an arm and a leg were certainly considered more important than, than something like just a finger or an eye. But then there are others not so well represented on, on Roberts's pirate code, but others that have to do with occupational health and safety. So check this one out. This one come, came from the code of pirate John Phillips. That man that shall snap his arms or smoke tobacco in the hold without a cap to his pipe or carried a candle lighted without a lantern shall suffer the same punishment as in the former article, which was, by the way, 39 lashes. So, I mean, going about with, a, you know, with an open flame in, in the hold uh, was something that put everyone in danger. And therefore, if you were, if you were to break this rule, you'd be, you'd be lashed 39 times. A bit of Moses' law there. Unbelievable. Phillips did have another one that I was a fan of here, and, and, and this one wasn't just about conduct while on his ship. It, was also, it also applied to shore leave. Check this one out. <clears throat> if at any time you meet with a prudent woman, that man that offers to meddle with her without her consent shall suffer present death. Now, it's not often that sexual assault was taken very seriously at all back in those days. So even if John Phillips was a violent and avaricious and murderous pirate, at least he was a little more forward-thinking in some other areas and kept his men accountable, not just on his ship, but also when they were on shore. I, I, was, I was quite surprised by that, but good on you, Phillips, for, for at least that. I'm not condoning a lot of the other stuff that he got up to. But my favourite out of all of these, my favourite out of all of these, these various articles on various pirate codes, is one that comes to us from the codes of both Edward Lowe and George Lothar, right? <clears throat> He that sees a sail first shall have the best pistol or small arm aboard of her. Essentially, if you spot the ship that they capture, you get the best loot aboard it. Brilliant. How about that? Anyway, 
Roberts put together all of these articles. He brought his crew together and they duly agreed upon it. And now with a something of a fresh start, putting the, the bad business with Walter Kennedy behind them, they set sail once again, but not before giving their sloop a new name, the Fortune. And as you'll see, this name grew to be something of a favourite of Roberts. The, uh, the, the word Fortune featured heavily in many of the ships that he sailed uh, later on. Anyway, as 1719 turned into 1720, Roberts sailed the Fortune north towards the West Indies, and in February he joined forces with another pirate, the French pirate Montigny La Palisade. Uh, under very strange circumstances, however, Roberts and his crew were obviously always on the lookout for new victims. And when they uh, when they spotted this French sloop off in the distance, they quickly gave chase, you know, hoisting the classic pirate's black flag. But as the Fortune bore down on the French ship with its uh, with its uh, its pirate flag flapping in the breeze, it uh, the, the French ship raised a black flag of its own in response. And so Roberts, seeing this, called off the attack met Captain La Palisse, and they obviously hit it off, you know? I don't know, they, they, they had a chat and talked, talked things over, and they decided to sail together, to join forces. So La Palisse, he sailed a sloop called the Sea King. He must have been a Pokemon fan. Uh, and he happily sailed alongside Roberts, the two of them again coming together for this sort of nascent pirate fleet here. And uh, after moving into the Caribbean and terrorising the Caribbean together, Roberts and La Palisade became victims of their own success because so fierce were their depredations and, uh, you know, they managed to attack and, and, and loot and plunder so many ships that they finally attracted the attention of various governmental authorities, specifically from Barbados and Martinique, who sent pirate hunters off after the two of them. Now, as they, you know, continued on their merry way around the, uh, around the, the, the Caribbean and, you know, plundering and looting wherever they went, these pirate hunters, slowly but surely, were gaining on them, tracking them down, hunting them down, and were going to do everything to try to bring these pirates to justice. And when some of these pirate hunters sent by Barbados and Martinique caught up with the two sloops, the sloops were forced to flee. They were caught with their pants down. They weren't ready to fight. But they didn't manage to make it out particularly successfully because the fortune sustained significant damage and... The, much of the crew was wounded or even killed. Roberts and La Palace, they, they split up to, uh, to try to escape. And, and that's actually it for La Palace for the time being. He managed to escape with just some minor damage to the rigging. Um, we'll check back in with him down the track a little bit later on next week. Uh, keep him in mind because he's, his part in this tale isn't quite over yet. But, uh, but, that's, it. but that's it for him for now. Uh, but Roberts, right, he's in a bad way. His ship, his crew... They've been uh, they've been devastated by this attack. Uh, the pirate hunters have, have, have just, they've really given them the business, and despite ultimately managing to escape them, remember pirates tended to favour uh, very quick ships that were able to make swift getaways. The fortune is in absolute tatters, and much of the crew, as I say, is wounded or or just dying. So Roberts uh, he limps the fortune to Dominica. Uh, he loses about twenty men to the injuries that they sustained during the pirate hunters' attack. And after arriving, the remaining crew had to set about repairing the ship as best they could, as well as completing another special assignment from Roberts, making him a new flag, which we'll talk about next week. Because here, my friends, is where we leave Bartholomew Roberts for the time being, with a damaged ship and a ravaged crew, furious with these pirate hunters for his current position, and hell-bent on revenge actually i probably I, I i probably shouldn't lead you on he never actually really got real proper revenge for this attack we're not gonna i don't want to have a you know a cliffhanger that 
we're going to be able to resolve next week. He, I don't want to set up a storyline that isn't going to pay off. I mean, he did manage to, well, you know what? Actually, no, we'll save it. You'll have to tune in next week for me to tell you about what he did to seek revenge for this uh, attack by the pirate hunters here, as well as all sorts of other stuff. I might add, we, we've got the adventures and the misadventures that Roberts had during the rest of his career, including his untimely death, and there'll be plenty more pirate chat too. So if you've ever wondered why pirates use black flags and why they're called Jolly Rogers, be sure to tune in next week. But that's it. That's all she wrote today, sports fans. That is half the story of Bartholomew Roberts, uh, one of the greatest pirates ever to have sailed the seas. And of course, in addition to that, all of the other bonus pirate content that I do hope you enjoyed. And we'll be back with more of the same next week. More pirate chat for you to enjoy. So uh, looking forward to your company then. Until then, of course, leaving with all the boring housekeeping stuff, halfasshistory.net, contact form there. Um, uh, and uh, links to things like the merch shop. We can go and buy whatever you want. Well, not whatever you want. I mean, you can't find like, I don't know, a four-slice toaster there or... I don't know, a tennis racket, but still, you know, you, there's a lot of good lot of good stuff there if you want to support the show a little bit. And if you want to support the show in a different way, Half Us History does have a Patreon that you can join up and support the show directly and gain access to all sorts of stuff like early access to episodes and show notes and behind-the-scenes stuff and an exclusive merch, patron-only merch, still available there if you want to go and get across that. Thank you to all the new patrons that have joined up and thank you to the old patrons and thank you to the patrons who are somewhere in the middle. You're all wonderful and I guess thank you to all the people who are just freeloaders as well, because your contribution to this podcast is is still immensely appreciated, whether whether you're sending in topics, whether you're telling your friends about it, or whether you're just boosting those download numbers. It's still great to have you along, so thank you very much for listening. Back here next week, of course, with more of the story of Bartholomew Roberts, so I do hope you'll join me then. Until then, leaving you with a question, not a pirate-related question, however, but a Wales-related question, because, of course, uh, Roberts was a Welshman. This question comes to us from Redditor Narfinth X, or maybe it's Narfinth X, long may they reign. Why is Prince Charles called the Prince of Wales? He looks pretty human to me.